If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to the New Testament book of Colossians this morning, which is found on page 1,178 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to look on there. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1, which finishes a passage of Scripture that we began last week, a passage that outlines for us Jesus Christ's sufficient work of reconciliation. And this is broken. Oh, well. (laughs) Uh, As you can see, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, uh, God is on the mission of exalting and magnifying Christ above all in our lives. And so God uses Paul... In our passage before us this morning, uh, a passage that outlines for us Jesus Christ's sufficient work of reconciliation. He expounds on the fact of Jesus Christ's supreme worth, which we see in verses 15 through 18. And then second, he expounds on Jesus' sufficient work in verses 19 through 23. And it is that second point, which we began last week, uh, which is really where Christ's preeminence hits the ground and takes on a personal importance for us. You see, you might be tempted to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 18, where it goes through those 11 descriptions of who Jesus is, and you may be tempted to look at all of that and say, okay, well, who cares, right? Who cares? Why should I care? What if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one from whom and for whom all things exist? So what if he's the preeminent one? Why should I care that Jesus is so great? And the answer is because Jesus is so good and out of Christ's greatness flows to us great goodness. Great goodness. As we saw last week in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1, in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. It was pleased to dwell. And from his fullness, John 1, 16 adds, we have all received grace upon grace. So that's why you should care about Jesus Christ's greatness. It's because out of his greatness flows to us great goodness. That's primarily Paul's focus at this point. You ought to worship Christ and give him the preeminence in your life. Why? Because of who he is and because of what he has done. As we saw at the end of verse 20 last week, this great Jesus in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell has by his greatness made peace between a holy God and unholy sinners by the blood of his cross. That is why the preeminence of Christ matters. That is why the greatness of Jesus Christ matters. It's because he has done great things. He has made peace. He has reconciled us to God. And Paul wants us to understand and come to grasp the glory of Christ's sufficient work on the cross. The glory of his reconciliation. And so in verses 19 through 20, he tells us about the extent of his reconciliation. We looked at that last week. That Christ will bring everything in this universe one day into proper alignment with our creator God. Second, we'll look at today the effect of Christ's reconciliation in verses 21 through 22. And then finally, we'll look at the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in verse 23. So the extent 
the effect and the evidence of Christ's reconciliation from Colossians 1, 21 through 23. With that in mind, let's read Colossians 1, 19 through 23 for context. Colossians 1, starting at verse 19. The Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, writes this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God who puts the insolent to shame as we meditate on his precepts. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that we have this passage of Scripture to study. And we thank you, Father, for the truth that it reflects that Jesus, who is all in all, who is the very fullness of God, took upon himself the form of a servant as holy God came to dwell among unholy sinners so that he, as the God-man, could reconcile men to God. Father, we thank you for the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. I pray that its truth would be crystal clear this morning. And that it would become a wellspring of worship in each and every heart that is gathered here today. Father, I pray if there is someone who has not experienced the effect of Christ's work on the cross, that today would be the day when they come from death into life. That they would know at last what it means to be born again, to have new and eternal life. Father, as we enter into this new year, help us to remember what is past and help us to remember what is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we turn to consider verses 21 through 23 before us today, Uh, I want you to realize that these verses answer for us a very important question and a foundational one. That question is this, what is a Christian or who is a Christian? We live in a world where almost anyone can pass as a Christian. For most people who live overseas, if you're an American, you're a Christian. For most people who live Here on these shores, if you believe that God exists, but you would not call yourself a Muslim, that means you're a Christian. 
And for most people living in conservative areas of our country, if you go to church every once in a while, vote on the right side of the political spectrum and are against gun control and abortion, that means you're a Christian. A Christian today is defined as nearly anybody. Well, today God answers the question, who is a Christian, with absolute clarity for us from his word. Who is a Christian? Well, according to Colossians 1, 21 through 23, a Christian is someone who manifests the effect and the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in their lives. A Christian is someone who manifests the effect and the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in their lives. And so let's look at that this morning. After Paul reveals the extent of Christ's reconciliation in verses 19 through 20, he then communicates for us the effect of Christ's reconciliation in verses 21 through 22. When Christ's work on the cross is applied to someone's life, does it make a difference at all? And what difference does it make? The effect of his reconciliation. If I was to summarize it for you before we even dive into these verses, it would be this. A change in nature. A change in nature. When Christ reconciles a sinner to God, that sinner experiences a radical change in his or her nature. And Paul, in order to reestablish the preeminence of Jesus Christ in the hearts and minds of those in Colossae, he reminds them of the radical change that Jesus Christ alone worked in their lives. You ought to worship Christ and give him the preeminence because remember what he has done for you. That is Paul's argument here. He is radically transforming you from who you were into who you were meant to be. And that ought to be a wellspring and motivation for greater worship and glory of Christ. So I have a question for you even before we begin. Believer, has your worship and zeal for Christ been drying out lately? What you need to do is you need to go back to the cross and you need to remember who you were and you need to remember who you are becoming by the power of Christ alone. Because Jesus Christ is changing you if you are his. He's changing you first from who you were. That's in verse 21, where Paul writes, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That is who all of us were before God drew us by his grace to faith in Jesus Christ. First, Paul says we were once alienated from God. We were cut off from him, banished just as Adam and Eve were from the garden, from his blessed presence. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. You see, our sin separates us from a holy God, even from birth. Psalms 51 verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All of us are born with a sin nature because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in humanity's fall. Therefore, we are estranged from the womb, Psalm 58.3 says, and we go astray from our birth. You don't have to teach a child how to lose his temper. He knows exactly how to do it the moment he comes out. 
You don't have to teach your child this is how you tell a lie. They are prone to do it, even from birth. Prone to go astray. Even, and then, by the way, even after we realize that our actions are transgressions against holy God, nothing changes, right? We still choose to sin. And that sin causes a separation between us and God. I'd like you to turn back really quickly to Ephesians chapter 2, which we looked at at our, at our uh, scripture reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to see the truth reflected here in this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, in a very similar wording to what we saw in Colossians, Paul writes this, Ephesians 2, 12, he says, And you remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having, listen to this, no hope and without God in this world. Ladies and gentlemen, that is everyone. Everyone in this world who is outside of Christ having no hope being without God in this world. Every problem in this broken world can be traced back to that one phrase. This world is filled with people who are without hope because they are without God. They're alienated. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 18, it says this. Paul writes in verse 17, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? Those who don't know Christ, in the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. See, those who are yet unredeemed and unforgiven are cut off from the life of God. They're alienated from him, Paul says here. And I want you to notice here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, before we go back to Colossians, because it is the perfect connection. The ultimate reason why people are alienated from God is not because they are ignorant. That is not what Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 4. Notice, any ignorance about God that exists in a person, any ignorance that a person has about God that they possess is due to their what? hardness of heart see the soul who is outside the saving refuge of jesus christ is not hard-hearted towards god because he is ignorant he is ignorant towards god because he is hard-hearted that is the human condition the unsaved soul knows very little about god ladies and gentlemen because he does not want to know anything about god that's why he knows little of him This world and this nation is filled with people who have heard at least rumors of this book called the Bible that many people believe to be the Word of God. And they have heard at least rumors of this Jesus called a Savior who at least claims to be the Son of God. And they know that millions of people around the world believe these claims to be true. Perhaps you this morning have not believed in Jesus Christ, and yet you've heard all these rumors as well. Yeah, I've heard that the Bible is the Word of God. I heard that people call Jesus to be the Savior, right? 
Millions of people believe, know that, uh, millions of people know and believe these claims to be true, and perhaps you've heard of it. So what does the world do with that knowledge, though? Think about it. This is the age of the internet. People are literally seconds away from being able to read directly from the Bible all they could ever want about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and yet billions of people around the world do not do it. Why? Why are they ignorant? Because they do not want to know about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The world exists with a problem. That problem is not a mental ignorance problem. That problem is a hard-hearted problem. They do not know God because they do not want to know Him. That's Paul's point. The ultimate problem of this world is not a problem of the mind. The ultimate problem of this world is a problem of the heart. Therefore... Therefore, ultimately, what the world needs is not greater head knowledge. What they need is God's grace to break their hardened hearts to pieces. Therefore, evangelism is just as much prayer for the hard-hearted sinner as it is delivering the word of God to the ignorant mind. This is why people are ignorant. And that's why people are alienated. It's because they're hard-hearted. That's exactly what Paul is going to say next in Colossians 1.21. He says, and you who were once alienated and were what? Hostile, he says, in mind. Do you remember this, believer? You want to know? Why you were alienated and cut off from God before you came to Jesus Christ? It's because you hated God. See, we're not apathetic towards God before we trust in Christ. We're antagonistic towards Him. We refuse to accept God's assessment of our lives that we are sinners. Right? And we refuse to accept His remedy to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the saving sovereignty of Jesus Christ for salvation. We refuse that. We were in a settled state of hatred. And why did you and I hate God? Because verse 21 says you were doing what? Evil deeds. See, that's why you hated God. Perhaps for some of you here this morning, that's why you still hate God. It's because you love your evil deeds. As Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Paul lists some of those evil deeds in Colossians 3.5-9. Later on in this epistle, before coming to Christ, we loved what? Sexual immorality. So why would I come to Christ and ask him to free myself from sexual immorality when I love it? Right? We, we loved impurity. We loved passion. We loved evil desire. We loved covetousness, which is idolatry. Why would I ever ask Christ to save me from it? I love it. We took pleasure in anger. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. This was our state of mind and heart. 
So do you think you came to Christ suddenly? Because all of a sudden you just put all the pieces together? You were an enemy of God, hating him daily because you loved evil deeds. We hated God because we loved these things. So you see the, the connection, the progression here. Because you love sin, you chose to sin. Because you chose to sin, God rightly rebuked you. Because God rightly rebuked him, you hated him because of that. And because you hated him because of that, you were alienated from him, cut off from your own, by your own evil deeds. It all comes down to your heart. Man's condition is revealed by his conduct. You might be sitting here thinking, that is a little harsh. I would not say that I hate God today. Then why do you do the things that God hates? Evil deeds are the result of an evil heart. No matter the culture and no matter the age, this is what Proverbs 20, 20 verse 11 says, even a child is known by his conduct, by whether his deeds are pure and right. Evil deeds equal an evil heart. The mindset of an unbeliever towards God, our mindset before coming to Christ, is that of settled hatred. As Romans 8 verse 7 says, the mind that is set in the flesh is what? Hostile to God. We need to understand that those who have not trusted in Christ are not innocent or ignorant or apathetic towards God. When we're witnessing to someone, we're dealing with someone who is an enemy and is antagonistic towards God because they still love their evil deeds. I have literally had people tell me in moments of witnessing, I don't want to trust in Jesus Christ because that means I, would, I know he would change me and I'll have to leave these sins behind. They love the darkness rather than the light. They're alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's all of us before we trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We were without hope. We were without God. We were hostile in our minds. And we loved it. We loved our evil deeds. We were rebels who had taken up arms, enemies arrayed, against the God of this universe. We were enemies in need of what? In need of Christ's work of reconciliation. And Paul rejoices that Christ's great reconciliation reached the Colossian believers. He says, I want, he says, I want you to remember, you are being transformed from who you were into who you were meant to be. Into who you were meant to be. Verse 22, look at what Paul says. He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What greater words of hope could you possibly ever desire at the start of a new year? Look at this. Paul writes first, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. That is the good news. You who were once enemies of God have now become friends with God. You who were children of wrath by Christ's work have become children of God. How? In Christ's body of flesh by his death. The only reason you and I have been reconciled through peace to God is because Jesus took the wages for our sin. The penalty, the consequences that were coming upon us because we were alienated, because we were hostile, because we were living in, in bondage to evil deeds. Jesus took, took the wages for our sins. See, so, well, what are the wages for sin? They're twofold. 
The first wages of sin is separation from the blessed presence of God forever. As we've already seen in second, the second wage of sin is death beneath God's just wrath, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus experienced both of those on our behalf, beloved. Think about it. Jesus was banished from God's blessed presence. That's why he, the eternal son, cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died beneath God's just wrath as well, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. He took the penalty for your sin upon himself. He took your place. He took my place. He paid the price for all of our sins, believer. All of them have been nailed to the cross where he was nailed. He satisfied God's justice. And he made peace, as verse 20 said, by the blood of his cross. As Colossians 1.14 said earlier, in Christ we have redemption. The what? The forgiveness of our sins. I want you to listen, everyone here who has not trusted and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. You need to know that you are alienated from God. That if you die in this moment, you will enter into an eternity outside of his blessed presence in a place of eternal torment called hell. You are not in any position of security outside of Christ. You are at this moment dealing with a bigger problem than just some issues in your life. You are dealing with a heart that is set at war with God. And you need to be born again. You must be born again if you will enter the kingdom of God. This morning, Jesus Christ has done everything needed to reconcile you to God. You can have peace with God. This morning, I want you to know that you can be forgiven of all of your sins that you've ever committed, past, present, and future. Your life can be made new and you can be reconciled to God. Confess your sins and come to Christ in faith and live. As the old children's song says, there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Reconciled to God by Christ's death on the cross. Have you forgotten this believer? That this is who you were? While we were enemies, Romans 5.10 says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Never forget, never forget that Jesus Christ is so great and also that Jesus Christ is so, so good. Jesus, keep me near the cross, we often sing. There, a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Jesus is so great. Jesus is so good. Remember that, believer. 
When you trust in Jesus Christ and his death on your behalf, you are reconciled to God. Notice for a purpose. He says, in order to present you what? Oh, listen to these words. Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Look at that. Would you just look at those words that Paul writes? It's almost too good to be true. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ instantly, at that very moment that you are reconciled by the blood of the cross, you are made holy and blameless and above all reproach. And notice the important phrase, before him, before God, right? We would have a problem if we start walking up to people who know us in our lives and say, hey, I'm Zach, I am holy, I am blameless, and I am above reproach. And they will laugh you out of this state. No, remember the last part, that we are holy, we are blameless, we are above reproach before him. Before him. In practice before others, we've got some problems still. Amen? But in position before God, we don't have problems, we have Christ. When we stand before God in him, and therefore God looks at us in Christ as holy and blameless and above reproach. Satan's accusations have nothing on you. I don't know what this past year looked like. I don't know what this past week looked like. I don't know what your morning looked like. But in Christ you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's why Romans 1, 8 verse 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus We are holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. I want you to think about that this morning for a moment. I want you to think back on this past year. I want you to think back on every single sin that you don't even remember from this past year. I want you to think of them. Those moments of shame. Those moments of failure. Those moments of falling. Think of all that. Now think of this. I am holy. I am blameless. I am above reproach before God in heaven. Because I am in Christ Jesus. I am reconciled and I am redeemed. Jesus Christ is so great, and Jesus Christ is so, so good. Never forget this, believer. Never forget this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose what? All their guilty stains, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart's a song. Buried in the deepest sea, Christ has paid it all for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are gone. Our slate of sin has been wiped clean, believer. And you have nothing to rejoice in? Folly, 
there is a future aspect to this as well, I want you to know. After all, Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We can be sure that he who right now declares us holy and blameless and above reproach before him will one day make us holy and blameless and above reproach before him as well. There is coming a day when our practice will at last match our profession and position. And in heaven, we will finally be able to truly say, Hi, I am Zach. And I am finally holy. I am at last blameless. And I am forever without reproach. At last in practice as well as in position. As Ephesians 5.27 says, Christ will present the church to himself one day in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. It's you. That's me. I can't wait. From alienated hostile, doing evil deeds, to holy and blameless and above reproach. This is the effect of Christ's reconciliation. A radical transformation from what we were to what we're meant to be. Jesus is so good, and Jesus is so great. See, this is all about reestablishing the preeminence of Jesus Christ in our hearts and mind. We are surrounded by an apostate Christianity that keeps on telling us that Jesus Christ is not enough. That he is good, but you also need special revelations. You also need mystical experiences. You also need all these special rules and regulations to be able to become accepted before God and glorify him. And that is where these truths come in like a lightning bolt and say, that is all a lie, believer. Cling fast to Christ alone. He alone is supreme. He alone is sufficient. He is all you need. He is all anyone needs. You didn't need any special revelations to be reconciled to God, did you? Well, why in the world do you need it now? You didn't need any mystical experiences to be reconciled to God. What makes you think you need it now? And you didn't need any list of do's and don'ts before God said you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Why do you think you need them now? You just needed Christ and Christ alone to be reconciled to God. The moment you trusted and received him, at that very moment you stood before God in Christ, holy and blameless and above reproach. All you need, all you have ever needed, and all you will ever need is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He is the one who has brought about this miraculous change in nature, this effective reconciliation from who you were to who you are meant to be. All glory goes to Christ alone because he is so great and he is so good. So finally, really quickly, in light of Christ's reconciliation and its effect in the life of a sinner, I have one application for you all today. Examine your life. We've just seen that for every Christian, there is a time before and there is a time after. That there is a glorious transformation that occurs in the heart of every sinner who is reconciled to God in Christ. A change that is not just on the outside, but a change that is on the inside that utterly transforms everything else. My question to all of you this morning is very simple. Can you see that miracle in your life? Can you see that transformation that only God's grace can bring? Can you see the effect of reconciliation? Are you able to identify a time in which you are different in which you were different from who you are now. 
And can you attribute that change to Jesus Christ alone? Can you say with utmost confidence this morning, I am no longer an enemy of God, I'm a friend? Who no longer hates God, but rather who loves him and seeks to please him with my life from the heart? Can you say this morning with confidence, I am in Christ and I am a new creation? See, you don't need a New Year's resolution. You need a New Year's reconciliation. You need to trust in Christ. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone, right where you're sitting. And today you don't have to be alienated any longer. Today you don't need to be hostile at enmity with God. You don't need to be in bondage to your sin anymore. Today you can be holy, blameless, and above reproach before God in Christ. For the rest of you, if you have already done this, I want you to remember who you were. I want you to remember how Christ is changing you and who you are meant to be. And I want to tell you to worship Christ and cling to him alone as the great and the good one. Jesus Christ is so great. Jesus Christ is so good. We'll have to look at the other verses next week. But for now, this is the word of God from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that he is the one who came from heaven to work peace for his people. Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning that knows in their heart that they are not yet a friend of yours, that there is still enmity and hatred that exists between them and God, I pray, Father, that they would lay their heart out before you and that you in your grace would reconcile them to yourself. Father, I pray that you would give them faith to believe in Jesus Christ and that perfect work that he has done on the cross on their behalf. I pray that they would be saved this morning and that they would have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the rest of us as we approach this time of communion that we remember the importance of this moment and we would rejoice in what Christ's death on the cross means for us that we have peace with you. Help us to be glad in that this new year. Above all else, because we are no longer who we once were, and we are rapidly changing one day into the people that we are meant to be when we will stand before you, holy, blameless, and above reproach in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.